You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand the chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Recorded live. Straight pride. Man, woman, child. I'm talking about nation building. I'm talking about raising children. Straight pride. Man, woman, child. I'm talking about nation building. I'm talking about raising children. Straight pride. Like Uncle Tom, homos adopting babies, faggot Obama crazy. Mama 
made me This European insane me My vision clearer than HD I love my people so Euro demons gonna hate me I hate homos all saying they was born that way Deviant behavior will become the norm that way It's an all out of thought I keep them all at bay Oh I'm moving with a side of Cuba good like Trey I don't care about your feelings if you think I'm disrespecting you Homosexuality is not acceptable nah. You got me throwing up my vegetables And I'm even uncomfortable sitting next to you Straight pride, man, woman, child I'm talking about nation building, I'm talking about raising children Straight pride, man, woman, child I'm talking about nation building, I'm talking about raising children Straight pride, man, woman, child Yeah, straight pride, man, woman, child Yeah, straight pride
brother asked last night what made me do it. I think I was probably at a Disney game, and I was amazed by the number of us that stood up to that flag. And we all know that that flag has never represented us or our freedom. So at this time, just like the person would ask you to do, I'm going to ask you all to stand. Put the black power fist in the air. And if any of you want the lyrics to this song or want the song, if you have a CD back there that you want this song in particular, I will give it to you. Because as the brother said, this is something that we should have at our event to open up these events. Black Power Black Clark 
give us some background on Marcus Garvey, and then we'll move to uh, Dr. Amos Wilson and let the elders give us this wisdom because, you know, sometimes, you know, y'all want, I don't want to mess it up. I think we think nowadays sometimes information is it get messed up not because you're not wanting to give it out proper, but because it get convoluted because you feel like you got to outdo the information that was already there. You got to outshine whoever they laid it down. So, I say. We don't want to do that. We're going to let the master do the teaching. You know, we'll do the listening while the master, you know what I mean, the master teacher do the teaching. So that's going to be the move for tonight. We're going to go with uh, Dr. John Henry Clark, and we're going to go with uh, Dr. Amos Wilson. And we're going to let them teach us about Garvey tonight. You know, always good to go back. Hopefully I can find it. I had the Dr. John Henry Clark already pulled up. You know, I thought I'd seen the oh, there we go, Amos Wilson, the legacy of Marcus Garvey. There we go. All right, I got it, I got it. I got it. So we're going to rock this off nice. Let me see, let me see. Go. Well, Black Power, what's going on, Bubba? Tell me how you tonight, man. Black Power, man. Black, Black power. power, I'm good, man. Yeah. You know, oh. we out here ready for our BG weekend, man. We're going to go down, man. No doubt, no doubt. We're going to do the turn out, turn out, turn it over. You know what I mean? Come see the family. You know what you say? 100, though, though, man. A lot of times, man, we ain't got to say nothing, man. We just let the master teachers talk, man. They got them to put it down. Mm-hmm. So, that's, that's real shit, man. Right. I say. Yes, sir. You know, you know, we just be listening, and, and, and that's where it just comes from. Like, man, we just trying to redo what's already there, man. You ain't, you can't outdo it. You can't outdo mm-hmm. it. For real. I mean, because we talking about we talking about scholarship right now. We talking about the understanding of, of, of the life and times of Marcus Garvey. What more can we do than what the master teachers who was? I mean, they was closer to him. See, that's the thing. The further away you get from the summit, the, the more oh, the, the lines get. Goddamn right. You're right about that, brother boy, man. You know, mm-hmm. especially when you talk about not to hit the job here with Clark. Uh, you know what I'm saying? That's <laughs> my brother, my brother Little thing, but Dr. John Clark been banging on crackers, man, since, since, since your mama was in, goddamn, since your grandmama was in Catholic, nigga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we need to, we need to get, get that. Let, let him speak on it. You feel me? Already now, that who would know better than him? See. Yeah, exactly. Who would know better than him? Well, see, man, get ready for this RBG. You know what I'm saying? Weekend, get down there, holler at the, holler at the family. You know what I'm saying? Slide on in. You know. Already, man. We can't wait to get down here, brother B, man. We must yeah. kick it like a motherfucker, man. 
put the work in. Feel me? Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Said I was like, man, I said, I said, damn, you know, my medicinal, my, my, I don't know, my minerals are getting low by all this time. I said, hold up, going to see brother Black Cloud. I ain't worried about my minerals getting low. Uh, <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. I said, I'm good, I'm, I'm good, I'm with the homies, I'm good. You're good, man. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, man, I forgot who I'm rolling with, man. But here, man, I'm, I'm definitely, that's what I'm going to do, man. I'm going to let Dr. John Henry Clark put the move on for us right now, man, because it seems like, you know, he's going to definitely do it the best. Um. I'm going to dump you everybody line. You know, let Papa Clark hit it off, man, because, you know, it's an old to Marcus Garvey. We didn't have a show on his born day. But we're going to make sure that we do what it do for the people. And that's the main thing. This right here is for the people. It's for those who go to the archives and listen, man. It's for the people. We know, we know, we know it. You know what I'm saying? It's not for it's not speaking to the to the to the choir. It's not that. It's not singing to the choir. It's goddamn me for the for the people for the legacy. Yeah. And you know and, and this other thing, you know, it's always good to read to go over again things that you already learned. I mean it's always good. Right, let me let me let me go over this one more time. 'Cause it ingrains something else inside your brain every time that you hear it. You hear something different that you I ain't hear that the last time. I ain't, I ain't gonna front, brother boy, man. I know, I know for a fact before we even listen to it that Papa John here was part of tell me something, man, that I ain't know for so years. Yeah. I already know what, what the deal gonna be. Oh man, you man. Cancel that, man. I'm trying to get my shit open. It's acting funny on me. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can get this shit. You may already have. He's like, it's pretending like I got two, three screens open. All right, all right, all right, all right. I got it now. With him, headed down in. You know, my mother on a on a black power. Hold up, man. You going down there? Listen, man. Where you going? You going to that? All right, man. I need to know somebody contact. <laughs> I need to know somebody contact. Give me one contact at the link. Contact. That's all right, mama. I got you. No problem, mama. I got you. <laughs> oh, shit. But that's real. Cause my mama knows she she understand what we are dealing with. For a bit. So it's a good, you know what I'm saying? We, we still got to be on that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. Still got to be about that business. Well, listen, family, I'm going to have for everybody on the line on mute, this, mute the mic, and we're going to jump into the start the John Henry Clark. Black Power. Black Power.
what happened, man. Huh? Going wrong with my sound system. Huh. Hold on, man. I'm not getting no audio at all, so hold up. I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit this Amos Wilson. We'll go back to the Marcus Garvey, but I'm going to definitely, with uh, Dr. John Henry Clark, I'm, I'm going to get that back because I, I, I got another, I got a couple other ones. I want to keep the family on hold, so we'll go. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
psychology tells us it's so crucial to our current situation, it's so crucial to how we arrive at uh, our current situation. And it is an issue that, that is the psychology of self-hatred. It's an issue that we have to deal with if we are to move forward as a people because that psychology is so intimately related to everything that we do. So some of you heard um, some introductory statements about it on LIB Radio, and some of you have heard the show on uh, National Black Network. Uh, and taking the opportunity uh, in this series of lectures to be able to talk uninterrupted by the phone and to sort of give uh, a coherent presentation of this psychology that I think is very, very important for us to know. We will talk a good deal about how that psychology is completed. First portion here, our first two lectures reveal essentially with the interjection of self-hatred into the oppressed African personality. Just how does this uh, psychology of, of self-hatred work and how was it induced into the African mind? And how, how does it operate in the African psyche? What are the particular techniques that were used by our oppressors to bring about this psychology? So we will talk about it in uh, technical detail. The lectures will be somewhat didactic in the sense that we really want to discuss thoroughly uh, the psychology of the inducement of self-hatred so that we can get into some form of self-understanding. And, of course, so that once we learn the technique, we can arrive at methods for overcoming that uh, the psychology as such. I'd also, of course, like to take this opportunity to start a plug my uh, business over there, 215 West 125th Street, Harlem Graphics Art Center, which some of you, of course, have, uh, are familiar with. You can come by to see us over there. I'd like to invite um, the rest of you there and, and, of course, your friends to come by because, as indicated on a number of occasions, we are trying to put into concrete action the ideology and the philosophy of such uh, great leaders as Marcus Garvey, and to show that that black nationalism is not just an, an ideology and it's not just a rhetoric, but that it is an ideology that leads to self-actualization and concrete development. We want to show then that uh, what we are about philosophically and ideology, uh, ideologically are uh, shows itself in complete construction and development. We are over there trying to overthrow a number of myths, the myths that we as people cannot work together and build an enterprise that is efficient. The myths are the mythology of the so-called like business person who are trying to establish an efficient organization there, one that provides uh, for services. We are trying to also destroy the myth that one has to deny his or her culture in order to so-called make money or to to uh, create wealth. You often hear many of our people asking about uh, they're not about black power but green power, as if those two things can be really separated. Uh, the route to green power or whatever monetary color you want to talk about 
will not hide our culture. We are projecting our culture. We recognize that European culture has been projected not through lectures, but through commercial activity, through trade, through economic development. It, the European cultural imperialism is the handmaiden of European economic and militaristic imperialism. And ultimately, then, if we are to advance the culture, we must advance the culture at all levels of our activities, which includes our commercial activities as well. It's very important that we succeed over there because we want to illustrate that when an African votes and moves in favor of an African ideology, he's not voting for poverty, he's, in, he's voting for enrichment. He's not voting for dependency. He's not voting for an empty rhetoric and an empty rage, but he is voting to do something concretely about this situation. Our success as a business is one of the greatest political statements we can make, and we urge you then to help us make that statement along with other sisters and brothers who are here in Brooklyn, who are, of course, in the other boroughs in Manhattan, who are trying to do the same thing. We, we talk with each other, we uh, work with each other, and we collaborate with each other in an effort to try to advance the, uh, the ideology of African nationalism. So we all need your support. I want to look for a moment at uh, what I would call the legacy of Marcus Garvey. I want to note personally that it was the reading of the philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey that did so much to transform my own attitude about myself and about, of course, my people, not that um, I needed to be transformed from an assimilationist or integrationist self-aiding position, but um, into a coherent position, into a coherent ideological position. I was fortunate in my own upbringing to have been reared in a black community and to have been educated in black institutions where loving black people and, and, and being concerned about the advancement of African people was, a, was just natural. It was something that did not have to be lectured into the or taught into the, it was just a natural part of my growth and development. However, I must say, with coming to New York City, becoming, uh, making myself, uh, reading the books about Garvey and others, exposing myself, of course, to the bookstores there, Michelle's bookstores, standing on the, on the corner there with uh, uh, Davis, who passed here recently, and hearing other speakers that sort of put it all in place for me, sort of gave me my ultimate sense of direction. On my shelf right now is a four-act play about Marcus Garvey. I have one more act to, to go. Written about 10 or 15 years ago, as a matter of fact, so it's been sitting there. And, of course, I've been uh, telling myself I'm going to ultimately get around to finishing that play. So you can see that my relationship with him, uh, my spiritual relationship with him has been quite, um, quite intimate. 
significant enough for me to, in my first writing ethics, to seek to dramatize his life and represent his life and his philosophy in such a way that it could advance my own development and advance the social development of my people. And he has been the center of my life ever since. And personally, I see myself as a descendant of uh, Marcus Garvey and what Marcus Garvey is about. Firstly, we don't have time today to view the history of Marcus Garvey, and at this point, I must frankly say I haven't uh, been up as much as I should have in terms of the reading about that history. So rather than to try to recapture history, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with anyway, I'll just um, take a brief look at uh, some things I think that uh, Marcus Garvey left us as an individual, as an organizational person, and as a leader of black people. I think uh, one of the major things, of course, in the Marcus Garvey legacy was that of his perception of reality. I often talk about reality in my classes and in my general lectures because we have to recognize that at the center of one's adjustment to the world, at the center of one's ability to deal with the world, to change the world, to suit one's advantage, is a knowledge of reality. The very essence of pathology, the very essence of political, ideological, economic, social, and psychological pathology is a lack of knowledge of reality. How can you deal with reality if you don't know what it is? How can you deal with reality if you're blind to it or if it is distorted? I stated in another context last week that it's somewhat interesting that the brain is locked up in the darkness of the skull, and yet the brain is the the central unit that guides our behavior. And it guides that behavior based upon the information it receives from our senses. And therefore our senses must relay to the brain an accurate knowledge of reality. Because this is the only knowledge ultimately that the brain gets from the outside world. And the brain using its innate capacity its reasoning capacities, its comparative capacities, its basic knowledge and its memory and experience uses the information given to it by the senses to determine how the person is going to deal with reality, cope with reality, how the individual is going to shape reality to his own purposes. And therefore, if that information is distorted, then the brain determines behavior on that distorted information and individual is not adjusted. This is the case then with the people. It is necessary for people, if they're coping with reality, if they are trying to advance themselves, to know that reality. And they need sensors and people who can tell what that reality is, who can inform them as to the nature of that reality, so that the decisions that the group must make in determining how it will behave and how it will shape its destiny can be based on the real and not the unreal. 
And in Marcus Garvey then, I see this great thinker, this great seer, who informed us of the real world in which we exist. Not of a dream world, not of a world of wishful thinking, not a world distorted by, by hope, but a world that is seen as it is. A world that was sometimes brutally projected to us as people so that we could use that knowledge to advance our interests as such. And this is a legacy from Garvey that we must continue. Regardless of our pain, regardless of our discouragement, regardless of what may be going on, we must be determined to look reality in the face and to use that reality as a base and foundation of our behavior. Also in the legacy of Marcus Garvey, of course, the legacy of self-knowledge. Teachers and wise men and women from eons past have indicated that the foundation of sanity and the foundations of wisdom lie on and rest on a knowledge of self, knowing self. And of course, we know the Egyptian philosophy at the center of that philosophy was the admonition, know thyself. That is the essence of wisdom. Darby, of course, recognized that a lack of knowledge, that an amnesia about who and what we are is pathological. We recognize today in psychology that amnesia is a pathological state of mind. And a people who suffer from a lack of knowledge of themselves and of their history, a lack of knowledge of their creation, are a people who suffer then from a loss of identity. We recognize, as Darby recognized, that this lack of self-knowledge was deliberately induced into the mind and psyche of our people. Because we often state that we could not be Africans and slaves at the same time. We could not hold on to our African identity and our African self and knowledge of our African culture and be enslaved and be the subordinate of another people. It is only when that knowledge is removed and erased, when that knowledge is degraded and stolen and taken and distorted, it is only then that we lose our identity, and it is then when an identity is placed upon us by another people and by external forces. And therefore, a lack of self-knowledge is a lack of self-awareness, and a lack of self-awareness is an insensitivity to the self. But an insensitivity in the self is also an insensitivity to reality and an insensitivity to the outside world. And without the sensitivity of the outside world and the self, we are left to blindly stumble from one point to another. Ultimately, self-knowledge, in its deepest sense, is a knowledge of others. We cannot really get to know ourselves deeply 
without ultimately knowing our enemies, and without ultimately knowing our friends, and without ultimately knowing the Creator in whatever form or fashion. Because to get to know the self ultimately involves moving beyond the self and seeing the world from the vantage point of universalism. Consequently, we see in Marcus Garvey then in his efforts to rescue us from the pathology of racism, putting a major emphasis on self-knowledge and self-knowing. And we recognize today that if we are to regain our ethical self, we must engage deeper in self-knowledge and self-knowing. In psychology, we also recognize that at the center of pathology is the individual's inability to control himself. One of the amazing things about the human mind, when you look at it from the point of view of the so-called unconscious, is that the individual does not know himself, the individual does not know reality, the individual who escapes from self-knowledge is an individual then who does not know the roots and basis of his actions. He's an individual who seems to be uh, determined by external forces or by in- internal forces of which he has little or no knowledge. He's often constantly puzzled by his own behavior. He's often a wonderment to himself. He struggles against impulses and desires and wishes over which he has little or no control because he has, in his escape from self-knowing, in his escape from reality, conceded his self-control and given it over to someone else. In releasing his identity and permitting another to place an identity within his psyche, he is at the same time then placed in the hands of that other, the ability to control his behavior. So consequently, we see in Marcus Garvey then that if we are to control our destiny, we then must control ourselves. We must enter into a phase where the control of our behavior comes under the domination of our will. The essence in many psychotherapies is to make the individual aware of the unconscious forces, the unconscious wishes and impulses that are determining his behavior against his will. And in making these forces conscious, the individual can bring them under conscious control. The individual can bring his behavior under the dominant control of reason and logic. He then is not a victim of his emotions. He's not swept by emotions and feelings only, but his emotions serve his interests. His emotions are his handmaidens, and he is not the one who's just swept alone, helped to shelter by feelings and impulses. And we see then in Marcus Garvey the ultimate psychotherapist, the psychotherapist then who is revealing and who reveals the unconscious control, the controls that were implanted outside of our consciousness 
by our enemies and by our oppressors. And yet, despite their being outside of our consciousness, they were manipulating our behavior to our own disadvantage. And in bringing those unconscious forces into consciousness, we then made it possible for us to bring those forces under our control and under our rule and under our logic and our rationality and under the control of the ideology of nationalism. And this is the legacy then that still lives today. Often we see in the neurotic individual, in the pathological individual, an individual who has little self-esteem and little self-acceptance. The acceptance of reality, which I referred to at the beginning, ultimately must be the acceptance of oneself. The acceptance of reality, as Marcus Garvey recognized and projected, ultimately must mean the acceptance of our African history, the acceptance of the fact that we are an African people. That seems a bit simple when we state it, and it seems a bit obvious. However, when you engage in psychotherapy, we recognize that sometimes you have the patient who comes into the office who is intellectually aware and can quite often lecture the therapist in terms of theoretical ideas and the theoretical grounds for therapeutic work, but who has not recognized and not confronted himself emotionally, who is not really in his heart, accepted what he knows. So what I'm saying here, while we may recognize superficially and intellectually that it is important that we accept the reality of our Africanity, we must recognize deeply in our heart, in the very bottom of our psyche, of our Africanity. a lot of the pathology of the African people today is the vain hope that somehow we will be able to escape our African heritage. That somehow the white man will become colorblind and will not see us for who and what we are. That somehow we will be looked upon as some kind of abstraction as just a man not as an African man, not as a black man, but as a man, as, as a human being only, without culture, without recognition, without identity. And too many of us want to shed our Africanity for this kind of bogus, abstract existence, which is no existence at all, which is the ultimate acceptance of invisibility. We must recognize that we are an African people and we will be an African people to the end of time, and we must accept all that goes with that. We must accept the good and the bad, all of the possibilities of those who being African. 
We must accept the fact that this white man is never going to accept us totally and get used to the idea. Hope is a wonderful thing in some senses, but it can be pathological in others. The neurotic individual uses hope in a pathological way. He lives in hope and does not know when to give it up. There's a time that hope has to be given up. But one looks at reality and recognizes reality for what it is, and one accepts certain aspects of that reality and moves on it. The hope that this white man is going to accept you as his own is one of those hopes that you must give up. The hope and the dream that you're going to be holding in little white boys and girls. And if the white man is going to see his children, see your children before he sees his own, that he's going to close you before he closes his own, that he's going to give up his ill-gotten gain and wealth in the name of some kind of bogus brotherhood or classless society in the vain hope. Give it up. Turn it loose. And when you turn it loose, then you will see a growth and development of self. It would mean then an acceptance of self. And we see this in Mark Garvey as he got us to step, as I to get us to step the reality of ourselves and the reality of our Africanistic. He recognized, as we must recognize again today, that we cannot get self-acceptance through the acceptance of another people. That self-acceptance can only be achieved through the self. We must not wait for our enemies to approve of us and to so-called accept us as a way of accepting ourselves. Because, ladies and gentlemen, our enemies, their very lives, their very way of life, depends upon our non-acceptance. And if it's the foundation of their very culture and the foundation of their very economic and social system and political system is one that is founded upon the subordination of white people, then you must recognize that they are not going to give that up. For it would be like giving up their very lives and their very system itself. And therefore, for us to wait around in the vain hope that their acceptance, we'll come to accept ourselves if we wait for nothing, because we will gain nothing as a result of this kind of delusion. And we see then in Marcus Garvey and in his legacy a confrontation with self-acceptance and what all and, and all that implies. He helps us to accept ourselves, of course, through a study of our history and in a study of our past. But as I will emphasize this later on, you will see that he did not get stuck in history. That he was very much in the present and very much into the future. He recognized, as we must recognize today, ladies and gentlemen, 
eating at lunch counters with our enemies, the sharing of hotels and beds with those enemies, the marrying and sleeping with their daughters, do not advance our interests ultimately as a people. But consuming their products do not ultimately rescue us from subordination. Ultimately, freedom and independence is founded on production, upon the creation of employment, upon the creation of labor, and the creation of products for our own consumption. When we look in the world today, we will see that the powerful nations and the powerful people are producing people not consuming people. As I've often said, you cannot consume yourself into equality. You cannot consume yourself into power. Those nations who depend upon consumption will see that as they consume the products of others and do not produce themselves, they will be consumed by others. We see that now happening right here in the so-called United States of America. We hear the people now in Congress and other places bellyaching about how the Japanese closed out their market and how we cannot sell in the Japanese market, but how the Japanese invade this market. The economists now know that this country is living on borrowed time that it is spending beyond its means, that its so-called Reagan prosperity is a bogus prosperity that is dependent upon the input of foreign nations, that Japan, to a good extent, along with a couple of other nations, is financing the consumption habits of the United States. And at some point, we are going to have to face a moment of truth. And we, as African people, must recognize that we are going to be caught in the very jaws of this moment. Because this kind of economic relationship cannot continue forever. We've seen evidence of it this week where tariffs were imposed or shall be imposed upon Japanese products. We have seen a wholesale stripping of the United States of its industrial base. The Midwest is now called the the Rust Belt because industries have literally flown outside of the country and the nation. I was looking the other evening at the so-called decrease in unemployment. And yet when you look at that decrease in unemployment, you see it in the so-called service area. You see the so-called increase of jobs in the areas of the McDonald's and the Bojangles but not in the areas of manufacturing. As a matter of fact, there is a continuing decline in the area of manufacturing in this country. So we have a superficial ideology that's built around service and service industry, but not around productivity. And now this white man is recognizing that in this nation, he has got to do something about it, or else he will fail. And we as a people, must recognize as well that we cannot move forward based on consumption. We must produce 
and outproduce our enemies. That is our ultimate salvation. No other thing will do. That is a legacy that Marcus Garvey left us and left us very strongly, that we must engage in productive labor, productive growth and development if we work and if we are to survive. Looking at the few statements in regard to the legacy of Marcus Garvey, there must be in some of your minds the question then, did it succeed? Uh, why are we in the state that we are in today? And I must like to say I am somewhat disturbed by the fact that to a degree, even though certainly the spirit of Marcus Garvey lives in the hearts of many of us, it has not manifested itself as much as it should have and as much as it can. As a matter of fact, when we look at our situation today, we see an actual decline in black economic development, not only in this country, but in the world in general. And we have been witnessing in the last few years, even in this country, a backward slide in our economic and political development. What happened in terms of the legacy of Marcus Garvey? Certainly there could be many reasons for that now. Just look at a couple. One of them, of course, I believe, was the and is the ascendancy of the assimilation, the integration. Those leaders who came and tried to project an unreal hope that we could advance the interests of our people by identifying with the destiny of our enemies. A people who tried to get us to forget our color and to forget our African heritage. A suppression of those of us who tried to maintain our African identity and our African destiny. When you couple that kind of leadership with a few sessions by the establishment with a type of prosperity, economic prosperity, that made an appearance in the 50s and maintained itself to the 60s. You had a combination then that worked against the interests of the nationalist organizations and the nationalist ideology. We saw a national and neo-colonialist leadership that fell for the delusion of the so-called establishment of the system and has misled the people into thinking then that their ultimate salvation is that of identifying and becoming one with their oppressors. It is the result of a leadership that is trying to get us to accept the reality of our
I have to deal with daily in my classroom is the amount of lying that must take place in the name of education. The amount of outright deception that goes by the name of education. All truth must be nailed to the cross in classrooms at the classroom. How people tremble and quake and suffer from anxiety when truth and reality is brought up by their teachers. How people are pushed out of the university and punished because they dare talk about truth. How people think that they should go to school only to be made comfortable. I have to warn my students time and time again that when you enter my classes, you are not going to be comfortable. I'm here to raise your level of anxiety and your level of fear. I am here to make you suffer. Because if you're in any class, particularly a social class, science class, then you're comfortable, chances are you're utilizing. Because it is in these classes that you must attain a confrontation with yourself and with reality. That you must attain a confrontation with the lying world that has created you in terms of who and what you are now. You must confront the nature of this beast called education of which you are a part and how it is going to transform you into a beast and how you then must be conscious, become conscious of what it is doing to you and against you so that you may escape the destiny that it has planned for you. And each day then I sit in the class, mixed, Asian, white, black, Hispanic, sometimes it's an exercise of twisting and turning and, <laughs> and squirming because I dare talk about slavery, because I dare talk about colonialism, because I dare talk about the sickness of Europeans, because I dare talk about the lying, deceptive, and devilish nature in the pathology of the people who now rule this world. And because I dare talk about the irony of where two white men sit down and determine the destiny of a world that's over 90% color. And where I dare tell them that they sit in these classes and they let these whites and their education brainwash them and propagandize them into servitude. And how their education is an education into ignorance. But if we are to rescue our children and our students and our people, then these unpleasant issues must be dealt with forthrightly. When we deal with them in a simulationist leadership, that sees solution to our problem, that getting our children more soundly educated into lies, then you are going to see a decline of destruction of that to Who thinks to their salvation? is one of being educated by the very people who destroyed them in the first place. We have a paradox there. Why is it that the arbiter of truth, the validator of truth, are the very people who lie to us most? You know, I often have to remind my students and my audiences if I say something, you have my time believing it and explain why 
right there for you to you to believe it right away. You have to be conditioned to accept. The lot to be accept truth and see truth as coming out the loud mouth of the liar. But that is a part of the thing that I will be talking about here in my next series of lectures. How is it that you make a piece of backwards? But that the first people they believe are the people whose lives are the lowest. But the first validators of truth are the people who have manipulated their very lives through lies of deception. I've indicated time and time again how you cannot have this 10% of the world's population ruling over the other 90% unless that, 90%, unless that 10% keeps the 90% out of its mind. They can only achieve its dominance over the other 90% through deception. The very essence of the identity of Satan, the devil, is that he is a deceiver. The very source of his power, the very foundation that is bringing mankind down and destroying the mankind is through the lie and through deception. And we must recognize then that the white man's rule begins upon ongoing deception and lies. And ultimately then, we cannot see him as the foundation and the basis of truth. And ultimately then, we cannot let him be the educator of our children. And ultimately, we cannot let the, the reality that he projects become our reality. For he is sick of mind and sick of heart. He is deceived by his own lies, and therefore the reality he projects must be a lying reality. He suffers and he is deadly. How can we not suffer and die if we accept what he sees as real and unreal? And those leaders then who seek seek to tell us that we can only rescue ourselves through accepting the identity of the white man, and to accept and to accepting the so-called reality of the white man are leaders who will lead us only to our peril and to our death. And we must recognize that if we were to live, we had to remove these kinds of leaders. And one of the reasons for the condition that we are in today then is that of a leadership that has not yet decided that it will determine a new reality and develop a Afrocentric reality, one that is suitable to the advancement and development of black people. We have a leadership that has thrown away and rejected self-knowing to a knowing of the enemy. We have people who have a pride in the fact that they know more about the enemy, about the history of their enemy, than they know about themselves who have a pride in getting degrees in the history of their enemies and knowing nothing about who and what they are as a people. We have a leadership then that made us think that knowledge itself was not important, that knowledge only of our oppressors was the only important knowledge, and that knowledge of who and what he was in the battle is the only knowledge of importance. And therefore, the more knowledge and the more education these leaders gain in the Eurocentric sense and the more
more knowledge and education they gained in terms of the knowledge of the oppressor, the more ignorant they became of themselves. And a people who, who are ignorant of themselves are a people, too, who are headed for disaster. Yeah, right. 
recognize, ladies and gentlemen, it's not about getting a piece of the stolen gains of these people, but it's to stop their thievery and rape of the world, period. So it is not about being left out of the mainstream, ladies and gentlemen. It is about bringing into being a new world order. We had a leadership, as I implied in our first statement, and I'm still talking about how we moved away from this godism, that in its in, in ascension could not love itself, except that it was loved by what? To a good extent, the assimilationist ideology was one as represented in the their Supreme Court struggle that said, that black children could not love themselves until they were loved by white children. That the self-hatred that was found in black people was a result of the fact that their masters did not love them. That the lack of self-respect was a result that we were not respected by our oppressors. And therefore, we put our children into school with them very early in life, that they might then get a chance to see that we are really human that we were just like they, and that then they could come and accept us as they accept themselves. And if they come to accept us as they accept themselves, then we would come to accept ourselves. A very serious kind of ideology and psychology that lays the basis of self-acceptance on the acceptance of our enemies. And therefore, we've been waiting these last 100 or 200 years for our enemies to love us by enemies to accept them so that we can get around to accepting ourselves. But often I ask the question, what if they never get around to accepting us? What if they never get around to loving us? A people whose love is based upon external sources and who must get around themselves through the love of external people are a people then who are under the control of those external forces and external people. A people who have no will and destiny of their own. A people who ultimately then are reactionary in nature, whose major concern is the attitude of their enemies, who are obsessed, who are compelled to look at their enemy and study their enemy day and night, who make a scholarship of looking at the every move of their enemy and reading the every similar body language of their enemy as a way of determining their own behavior and therefore never get around to themselves and knowing themselves and accepting and loving themselves. And we've had that kind of leadership. Looking at a minuscule population in the world, a 10% population in the world, as a cue as to how they themselves shall behave. It is a case, then, of the tail wagging the dog, where the small group of people wags the rest of the world, because the dog is obsessed with trying to catch up with the tail. This leadership, then, has robbed us of the Marcus Garvey legacy. We have a leadership, then, that has sold us conspicuous consumption as a way of salvaging our egos that makes us think that we will be equal to the 
right then when we can drive the same cars and have the same jobs, when we can sleep in the same beds and, and die in the same neighborhood, and consumer equality. Not an equality of ownership, not a real equality based on wealth. we got a leadership that talks to us about equality of income. And as I've often pointed out before, there is a difference between income and wealth. We will not be equal to the white man when we have an equal income, ladies and gentlemen. Because you can get an income from a salary, but you can also get an income from the ownership of resources. A man can have a million dollars worth of land and get an income of $10,000. And a man can get an income of $10,000 working for someone else. And even though you say they have an equal income, they are not equally wealthy. And so you have a leadership then that is sold us on income equality, but not wealth. That means that that's a leadership that's going to look at income instead of the control of African property, instead of the ownership of African property and the ownership of African wealth. A leadership that looks at the amount of consumption as a gauge of its equality looks at the degree to which it can consume as much as its master as the basis of equality and not the degree to which it owns its means of production and has control over its own inherited wealth. And we've had that kind of leadership, and thus we've seen that African people the world over in this country and on the continent give up the very basic wealth of their land, their own land, and their very basic real estate to their enemies for a few pennies and for materials that fade away and are corrupt and corruptible. We have a leadership then that is not concerned with developing its own productive capacity, but merely with uh, getting a job and being identified with the productive capacities of others, with literally marrying the enemy and thus trying to achieve the status of the enemy through marriage instead of through strength and power. We have seen then this assimilationist leadership which came to the fore and has pushed back to a degree the nationalist leadership reigned over then the decline of African peoples the world over. The decline in African education, the destruction of the African family, the retardation of African technology, the decline and retardation of African economics, the rampage of our community by drugs, the colonial occupation of our community by foreign police forces and others who are not members of the African community. When we look in over the past 20, 30, 40 years, we've seen an assimilationist leadership that has brought us to the terrible moral and economic, social, political, and educational impact which we are complaining about today, that has made us now face the Howard Beaches and the other kinds of disasters that are occurring daily, that, is, that are making us see then racism layer its ugly head in a very direct way on the campuses of Columbia University, the campuses of Massachusetts, uh, University of Massachusetts at uh, Amherst, Michigan, the so-called bastion of white liberalism. 
Thank you. 
a nasty nationalist whose truth we call. And let us test our nationalists by some of these criteria that I shall mention here. The true nationalist is not obsessed with the past to the exclusion of the present. We have some nationalists whose heads are on backwards, and they can only look into the distant past. And they look so far, they, they look so far in the past, and they're so concerned with the past until they stumble over the present and cannot see what is coming in the future. They they grovel and revel in the great glories of the past. See the absence of the future. One of the things I think you will see in the Marcus Garvey legacy is while he raised the black man's past to great heights. And while he projected that past, and while he made that past a part of the consciousness of black people, there was a thoroughgoing concern with the present and with the future. There was a thoroughgoing concern with the construction of now and the construction of the future. There has not merely been an ongoing and exclusive and compulsive concern with things that were and not with things as they are and things as they can and shall be. The true nationalist is forward-looking and futuristic. I can see too few conferences, few too people concerned about the future, even nationalists. What is going to occur in the year 2000? What will be the condition of the people in the year 2050, 2100? What must we do today to secure the survival and the advancement of African peoples the world over. What must we do to fight off the threat of the Asian takeover of the world? We are not only confronted with the white man today, ladies and gentlemen, we are also confronted with other people in the world today. We are confronted then with a rise of Asian civilization as well. Are we to throw off or are we to see the death of European civilization only to fall under the the yoke of Asian civilization, we can look out in our streets today and see it coming. It is around us everywhere. The invasion of our communities by the Asian unit is a sign of times to come. And the African man is at the crossroads today. For African people then must not only evoke their great past, but now they must evoke their future as well and create that future. The true nationalist, then, does not escape and hide through glorification of the past what must be done in the present and what must be done in the future. The bogus nationalist, he rises and raises up the people and builds up a false pride in the people in terms of past history, but he leaves them broken as to what must be done now and leaves them feeling high and mighty when they walk out of the halls and oratory, which is out of the halls and out of the churches, which is oratory ringing in their ears, only to face the Korean stores once they get outside. <laughs> only to face their communities taken over by Arabs, by Hispanics, and by other groups. And with that reigning oratory and rhetoric, they must face the reality that while the knowledge of history is wonderful and is great and it is a necessary part of our resurrection of people, it is 
not going to be our sole basis of salvation. We must not only concern ourselves with our past, we must concern ourselves with now, and we must use now to create our future. The true nationalist is intrepid. Not that the nationalist does not have fear, but he learns to operate in types of fear. Fear does not paralyze He uses the fear as an energy to move forward and to confront his enemies. He does not hide his fear behind high-sounding phrases and high-sounding scholarship in dredging up the past. He dredges up the past as a means of integrating it into his personality and as a foundation for his movement forward and his thrust into the future. He does not then put forth a kind of pseudo-game and I see many of our nationalist people putting forth here. They people who sort of participate with the establishment, who, are, who sort of arouse the revolutionary fervor of their audiences, but when you start to think about it, have left you with no real tools and techniques for dealing with our current problems. Who do not project the future and what it will be like. The true nationalist is entrepreneurial. He's building something. He's constructing something, and we see that in garbage. Not just a concern with the past, not just an identification with Egypt, not just an identification with the great African empires of the past, not just picking up little detail upon little detail of some African past, but of a sound movement forward in concrete brick and mortar construction a sound, hands-on development and actualization of African ideology and of African political uh, ideology and political development. He is one who then runs his fear aside and moves forward. The true nationalist not only respects his ethnic heritage and the glories of his ancestors, but is equally, if not more, concerned with the inheritance that he's going to pass on to his children, with the legacy that he's going to give to his children. We have people who go, scrape their money together, give it to Pan Am, give it to the average, jump out the plane, bow and scrape and kiss the earth. just to sell their own wounded ego. But when you come and say, give that $1,500 to the feeding of your children, to the educating of your children, to the creation of jobs for your people, to the gaining of control over real estate, and gaining of control over your wealth, somehow they're not able to make those sacrifices. They're willing to worship the pyramids of two and three and four thousand years ago, but will not build pyramids in the present so that their children may see what they have done well. We have then a people who then get caught up and make the people look at the past glory but leave their own children neglected. Who will say the great analytical and our rhetorical dissipation 
not contribute one penny of their monies and their time to the construction of their own school, who year after year would spend millions and give it away to the others, but will not give it to their young. That is pseudo-nationalism, ladies and gentlemen. We see the true nationalists in the guys and in the person of Marcus Garvey, in the person of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who not only complains about the nature of the education of black children, but who does something about it, who builds the schools and builds the universities, who constructs and instructs as a part of his nationalist mission. As the Bible says, you can tell a tree by the fruit it bears. Look not only then at the word, at the scholarship, at the dredging up of the past, but look at the fruit of the labors of your leaders. See what real and concrete comes from their words. The true nationalist is not obsessed about the destruction of his civilization about the cruelty of his faith and about the devilishness of his enemies. Certainly he analyzes those. He looks at it. Certainly he lamented the destruction of black civilization and the falls of our empires and the falls of our kingdoms and our falls from grace to degree. But he does not become traumatized by those falls and by those destructions. He does not become upset and compulsive about their analysis. He looks at them, he learns from them, he integrates them into his personality, into his ideology, and swears never again, and he moves forward. And he uses that knowledge to construct a new civilization. He looks at the mistakes of his ancestors, he looks at the mistakes of his past civilization, and he puts those mistakes and integrates those mistakes into his personality. And he then moves forward to build new civilizations and new worlds and to found new empires and not just to limit the ones past and gone. He does not exclusively study his past, but seeks to study and determine the future. He opens himself up to all kinds of knowledge and information as a way of getting to know reality. He does not spend too much time in sputtering and impotent rage against his oppressors, rage that does not advance his interest, but he works calmly and steadfastly to bring into being a new order. He does not indulge in ancient and esoteric ceremonies merely to establish his wounded ego and his wounded pride, and merely to divert his interest and to spend his time. He does not get carried away in moves and numbers and all of that as a way of guiding his life. He recognizes that while he may be into the phases of the moon and the movement of planets, that the real world moves by the operation of hands, brick and mortar being stacked one upon top of the other. While he recognizes the greatness of Osiris and Isis and all of the rest, he recognizes that ultimately the pyramids were built by the hands of men. That no God, I have yet to see a God build a temple. I see men building temples. 
gods and so forth, and it is great that we evoke those gods and look at those religions and get into the ideologies and get into the astrologies and get into the exoterica. Ultimately, though, we must come back down to earth and deal with the real things that are happening right here. We may use. There is nothing wrong with using the astrologies and using the, the esoteric religions and using the moons and planets as guides for our behavior. But let us not become obsessed with them to such a degree that we do nothing else. In fact, in my daily life, I tell you, the most retarded people I see in terms of economic, social, political, personal development, the ones who know the most about the moon, the most about the planet, the most about the numbers and you. And often I have to remind them sometimes, when are you going to use some of this stuff for your own self-defense? How is it then that you can give all of this great and wonderful advice to everyone else that you cannot use it for yourself? Why not demonstrate the effectiveness of what you're talking about in your own behavior and in your own life and therefore be a light and a beacon to other people and demonstrate your life behavior and your life habits the effectiveness of your ideology and of your religions and of your concepts? And so, therefore, I'm not saying don't believe in it, but let it work for you. I remember, I think it was far kind of someone who said a long time ago, that in a sense, what is it, the oppressed man, in one way, one man, uh, in one instance, his religion works for him, his religion serves him, and for the man that's down and out, he does what? He serves his religion. We have to make a difference. We have to look and, and differentiate between a religion and an ideology and an academic ceremony that works and serves who? Us. And one that requires our political. But not advance our interest and does not change our political social situation. But we got a lot of people out here then who are serving ceremonies, who are serving ideologies but whose ceremonies and ideologies are not doing the service for them. We must then, we can differentiate between the pseudo-nationalists and the true ones in the sense of his religion, is his ideology, is his philosophy serving him, or is he merely serving them? We must recognize while it is fine to worship the ancients and while it is fine to praise and respect our ancestors. We must not become so obsessively worshipful and so obsessed about their respect that we refuse to see about our own children, that we refuse to become great ancestors in our own life, that we refuse to take care of our future.
It is not talking about nation building. It is not constructing a national network. It is not constructing a national economic system, social and political system. It is a false nationalism, ladies and gentlemen. And therefore, we've had a leadership office that while it has inspired us with its knowledge of history and knowledge of the past, and inspired us with its daring to curse the white man out, has left us bereft of a nation and bereft of a government and bereft of a structure. The means and the only means by which ultimately we can defend ourselves against our enemies and determine our destiny. Be not been deceived by words. We must then look at these. It not only motivates, the true nationalist not only motivates through language and through uh, rhetoric and through oratory, but trains. You cannot train the people with a two-hour lecture on Saturday, ladies and gentlemen. You cannot train people with once a month, uh, once a week meeting. You know, I often get people talking about, they ask, but why do we do this? Why can't we just do so and so and so? You know, and they throw their hands up in exasperation. Why do we behave in this way or that way? Can't we see? You know, we get this kind of thing here that goes on. Then you get the question, what must we do in order to do so and so and so and so? And, of course, often that question is asked, with the expectation that some kind of magical formula is going to be handed out. You know, just say, abracadabra, and uh, things will change, you know. Make a few passes across the heart and, you know, do that and this, and it's going to change. It's not that way. You do what every other people have done. What do you think these schools are for out here, ladies and gentlemen? What do you think the colleges are here for? What do you think the various institutes are here for? They're here to train people to behave the way they are expected to behave. You don't leave it to happenstance and circumstance for your people to behave the way they should behave. You train them to behave the way they should behave. That is why you build schools. The, the European, the Japanese do not ask why don't their children behave this way. They train them to behave this way. They inculcate them. And they send them to school when? Once a week? Two hours on, the, on, on Saturday? Every day. Throughout the summer. Every evening. That's what school is about. They spend more time with their teachers and with their trainers often than with their parents. This is what you do. If you want your teacher to behave correctly economically, then you have to educate them economically. If you want them to behave in a family sort of way correctly, then they have to be educated to be familiar. If you want them to behave correctly in terms of self-respect toward one another, then they have to be trained to behave with respect toward one another. This is not something that comes up by accident. And institutions have to be developed and built so that this training can take place. And the greater part of their time and the time and effort of our children should be dedicated to being trained to, to acquire the behavior that we need to advance our interests. But you're not going to get that behavior if you depend upon that behavior being trained into your children by your enemies, by people who see their ill behavior and 
hours in the afternoon. You're going to have to teach it, stay in, and stay out, and place your students and your people in a position so that they may learn how to behave and how to resolve their problems. The intelligence is something, though it is given, has to be has to be shaped. It's through that you will see the seeds to the welfare of his people. One of the things we study the history of the Japanese and Chinese and other groups in this country, you study the history of the people who, particularly the Japanese and Chinese, thought to it that the welfare of their people were not in the hands of other people. And when you read in the past when, when the Chinese and the Japanese were suffering greatly from economic oppression, how they still did not let their people go on welfare through the general system. They built their own welfare program and their own internal caring program because they recognized that when people must beggar their enemy and when they must be supported by their enemy, then they're going to be directed by their enemy and their destiny is going to be determined by their enemy. And so consequently, if you have a nationalist leader that is not moving and desiring such that the people can care for themselves and their own interests, then you're dealing with a pseudo-nationalist, not a true nationalist. And you see then in Marcus Garvey, again, a man who is building with his organization a means by which the welfare of African people could be the basis and the concern and, and be founded upon the work and activity of African people, not upon other people who have stolen our wealth in the first place, and now we have to beg them for a little bit of it in the second. The true African leaders then reward the people and the approval of the people is the greatest approval he can gain. We still have people who gain their greatest sense of self through the degrees and through the so-called minor rewards given them by their enemies. And we often honor our own people to the degree that they have been given these symbols of authority by another people. We have to recognize that true nationalist becomes the source of his own rewards because the source of the approval of his own people, and it is ultimately the reward by our own and the approval of our own that is the, the final and the ultimate reward that we go for, because it is through getting rewarded and approved in this way that we advance the interests of our people. The true nationalist ground is political and social philosophy and practice on a realistic analysis of the situation and of his enemies. He is not a slavish reader of foreign sources and of other political ideologies. He does not submit his reading of Marx and Lenin and these other people to paralyze his ability to think creatively. And he must recognize that his, the ultimate foundation for his political activity and behavior is his own realistic analysis for himself of his situation and of his circumstances, and that his ultimate political decisions, social, economic, and otherwise, must be grounded on that knowledge, not upon a theoretical knowledge of people who belong to the enemy. Does it mean that he does not read the other people? Certainly he can read the other people. But his ultimate decision is based upon his own analysis and upon the sound knowledge of himself and who and what he is and upon his uh, reality. The true nationalist is not does not is not a purist to the degree that he is paralyzed. You know, you 
tell them about we want to be nationalists, but we also want to be so pure. Until the end, we don't we don't end up we don't do anything. No, we end up paralyzed. We would go into business, but that's capitalism, isn't it? So we don't go into that, and we would do this, but that in some way related to this ideology or to, to the enemy ideology or something. And so you see the individual also been trying to be such a good nationalist until he cannot engage in real tactical behavior. He is so concerned about getting his hand dirty, but he said that he dares not do anything at all. We can see the nationalist who is so hung up in the, his traumas, the traumas of nationalism, the traumas of, um, of capitalism, until he cannot engage in any economic development. He sees himself as been victimized by capitalistic greed, certainly by the Europeans, until he becomes afraid of money. He sees himself uh, used and exploited for economic ends until he does not determine exactly where money and wealth fit within his, within his social ideological system. And consequently, then, we get a nationalist who is hung up waiting for African communalism to come into being or communism to come into being, who's also fighting to engage in any kind of business because that's capitalism. So he remains frozen while the other ethnic groups move into his community and takes his economic resources and unemploys his children and uses his wealth against them. Therefore, the true nationalist recognizes that in this world, while we want to be as pure as possible and we strive for perfection, it means the time so we have to face reality for what it is and get out of it what we can and do the best with what we got and not let ourselves be caught up in with a puritanism that does nothing but set us up for our destruction. The true nationalist then is not caught up in decisiveness, in indecisiveness, and it's not caught up in some high-in-the-sky dream about classless society, but gets engaged in the true work of building and construction. The true nationalist is not afraid also to overthrow tradition, when tradition is unproductive. He's not one who just gives obesity to African tradition out of some blind ignorance. And he's not one who then who says, even though He's one who says, even though I revere the African past and I revere the African tradition, but that tradition can be built upon. I and my generation have something to add to that tradition. I have a right then to use the legacy of that tradition to confront the realities of my current time, to modify that tradition to speak to my survival and the survival of my people. And therefore, the true nationalist does not just manipulate and threaten with tradition, but uses tradition creatively and uses it knowing that as long as that tradition is used for the advancement of black people, then it is Afrocentric tradition. The true nationalist is not afraid then to engage in productive behavior. Where one sees then nationalism, one sees construction actual growth and development. One sees building, one sees institutions. 
development, when sees trade and development and commerce, when sees restructuring of values, restructuring of priorities, when sees the rebuilding of relationships, when sees the reallocation of resources. And when we then, as nationalist people, say that we are carrying out the legacy of Marcus Garvey, then let us show that legacy in concrete development, institution building, and nation building. Thank you very much.
should be looking forward to the future, making sure that the only reason we look into the past is in order to gain a better understanding of today to create the better tomorrow. And so uh, with that being said, you know, I'd like to uh, give a praise and that turn of glory to Garvey, long live the spirit of Dr. Khaled Abu Muhammad, uh, praise Harry Tubman, glory to Adi B. Wells, and long live the spirit of Sister Fanny Moran. BB-48. If you're a defender fighting to protect your organization from cyber attackers, you must be successful ending attacks every single time. They only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage. Our future-ready attack platform gives defenders the wisdom to uncover, understand, and piece together multiple threats, and the precision focus to end cyber attacks instantly. Together, we are the defenders. Cyber Reason. End cyber attacks. From endpoints to everywhere. Learn more at cyberreason.com. That's C-Y-B-E-R-E-A-S-O-N.com.